0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. Now, for those performing tasks in high-risk industries, personal protective equipment, or PPE, is their last line of defense. It's important to be as informed as possible about all of the PPE necessary to perform a job safely. But you may have some questions about the proper uses of flame resistant or FR garments within your PPE program. Fortunately, we have an expert on the podcast today that can provide you with the information that you're looking for. On today's episode, we're joined by Derek Sang, Technical Training Manager for Bulwark FR. Derek has been involved in the flame resistant clothing industry for over 20 years, taking on a variety of roles in the garment business from service to manufacturing to training. Over the course of his career, Derek has developed and conducted over 250 educational and informational seminars on FR technologies and the hazards of arc flash and flash fire for a variety of organizations. In his current role, Derek has developed over 40 hours of training curriculum for the Bulwark Institute, which focuses on non-commercial training for individuals and companies on thermal hazards and how to properly design and implement an FR clothing program. Along with being a recognized subject matter expert, Derek is also a qualified safety sales professional, certified environmental health and safety professional, and a certified safety, health, and environmental technician, making him the perfect expert to answer all of your burning FR questions. So, thank you, Derek, for being here with us today on EHS On Tap.
1: Justin, thank you for your kind introduction. Uh, sometimes I'm not sure how to take that; it makes me feel old sometimes. But uh, <laughs> I certainly enjoy talking to you today.
0: All right. Well. So let's talk about uh, FR or AR clothing, meaning flame resistant or arc rated. So what sort of protection does this clothing provide and what sorts of garments are out there?
1: Well, first of all, let's clear up acronyms. I mean, we do a great job and I have to remember that many of our end users hear FR and AR and may not be entirely clear on what that means. Sure. So first and foremost, it depends on your hazard. Mm what terminology you're going to want to focus on. All all arc-rated clothing, first and foremost, has to be flame-resistant. Mm. But not all flame-resistant clothing can be arc-rated. So what does that mean to be flame-resistant and arc-rated? Well, flame-resistant means that it's demonstrated through a variety of tests that it self-extinguishes. It puts itself mm. out. It will not melt, drip, and add to the injury. Mm. ARC-rated clothing, or AR, means that it has all those flame-resistant characteristics and it has gone through additional testing to protect you in an ARC flash hazard and it's obtained thus an ARC rating. So at the very basic, flame-resistant ARC-rating clothing eliminates clothing ignition, mitigates burn injury by self-extinguishing. Mm.
0: Okay. So what sorts of garments are out there? Are we talking shirts, pants? Anything that you can find in the retail
1: space, everything that you can find in the non-FR space, for the most part, you can find replicated in the flame-resistant ARC-rated clothing uh, world. So if you like a particular style of jean, a particular style of outerwear, jacket, etc., more than likely, a flame-resistant ARC-rated clothing manufacturer
0: replicated that. Okay. Uh- What about undergarments? Uh, Is it important for those to be flame resistant as well, just as much as outer layers?
1: So yes and no. And what I mean by that is first and foremost, everybody needs to be trained on what they can and cannot wear underneath their flame resistant clothing because Mm. it is important. The first thing we have to eliminate is any meltables that includes all your blends that includes your athletic performance gear that you wear in the gym that you may think hey it keeps me cool it helps me in hot environments when i'm working out i'm just going to wear it under my flame resistant arc rated clothing no don't do it absolute no fly zone Mm. but All the standards allow for natural fibers to be worn underneath flame-resistant arc-rated clothing, and that is fine. Why? Because natural fibers do not melt drip and thus don't add to the injury. The caveat or the big asterisk you need to see there is as long as that outer layer does not fail, meaning that there's Mm -hmm. not enough thermal energy in that arc flash or that flash fire to break open my outer layer, because if I'm breaking open, then I'm exposing what's underneath. And that's usually two things. That's either me and my birthday suit, or B, that's my 100% lightweight cotton t-shirt, aka fuel, which is now exposed to thermal energy. So I could technically be exposing fuel to energy by the outer layer breaking up. So if you look at good, better, best, wear your arc flame-resistant arc-rated garment, with just nothing underneath (laughs) better look where your flame resistant arc rated garment with cotton or wool or silk underneath natural fibers or best have an additional layer of flame resistant arc rated clothing underneath there are lightweight base layers available today so that if that outer layer does fail in that thermal event You have an additional layer of protection, and at the very least, you've eliminated any chance of those lightweight cotton t-shirts
0: igniting and causing injury that doesn't need to happen. Great. So um, what trades or occupations should be most concerned with using FR clothing on the job? So, well, if you think
1: about it, historically, first and foremost, the first to really adopt flame-resistant clothing, and it was primarily coveralls at the time, was our refineries. Mm. And And then from refineries, we moved into general industry electricians. That was our arc flash hazards. Then utilities all came on board, even though there was mixed adoption voluntarily uh, throughout the, the late 90s and into the early 2000s. In 2014, it became law that all our utilities uh, had to wear flame-resistant arc-rated clothing. And then most recently, uh, you think of our oil and gas exploration, all the drilling that we hear about in our shale plays, whether gas or the it's mandated that they have to wear uh, clothing that has flame-resistant properties. One area today, if you were to ask me going, is there any place that we're missing? I would say our combustible dust hazards is probably the biggest area that's often overlooked. We talk about combustible dust, which believe it or not, there's 30,000 businesses considered high risk for combustible dust by OSHA. Wow. Uh, OSHA doesn't have a regulation for combustible dust yet, but the new combustible dust NFPA 652 standard, and when I say new, we were out in 2016. We're now going into our first revision of that requires a dust hazard analysis to get done. If you have dust in a certain size particular, more than likely it's going to be combustible. There is a vast array of dust that you wouldn't think about. Obviously, all our organics people can think of, wood, uh, anything to do with vegetable matter, protein powders, anything in a fine need is going to be combustible. But you get into your metals like bronze and iron and aluminum. One of the biggest combustible dust incidents we had was in China, thankfully not here in the U.S., but hundreds of were killed of these massive fireballs that came out of uh, combustible dust, chain reaction flash fires occurring in facilities. So what we find in the US is we do a great job down to the admin level. We look at our hierarchy of safety controls, we get down to admin and we forget about, even though it's the least effective, it is the last line of defense and that's your PPE. And if you have a combustible dust hazard, you should be implementing flame resistant clothing at some way, shape or form in those facilities. So we have our historic core markets that we service that I discussed, and then probably one of the emerging markets that we're looking at and kind of keeping our fingers on the pulse off to see where it's going
0: would be our combustible dust uh, hazard. Absolutely. So uh, moving on to to the nitty-gritty of what's in these these garments, it's like we hear a lot about the health dangers of some flame retardant chemicals, you know, things like uh, polybrominated diphenyl ethers or PBDEs. So. Are there any similar concerns with FR garments and are any chemicals used to treat the fibers and the clothing easily absorbed through the skin or are they otherwise hazardous?
1: Great question because it there is a lot of misinformation in the marketplace. There's Mm -hmm. uses of terminology that are not entirely accurate today. For example, this question typically comes up two or three times a year. There'll be a a broadcast news element. Something will come through someone's feed. They'll be talking about cancer-causing agents in fire retardants or flame retardants. Mm -hmm. And typically, most of those, when you drill down, are in... Uh Textiles that are used in uh, other areas other than clothing. Uh, they're mm. used in equipment. They're used to cover furniture. They're used to slow down burn rates in uh, your homes, in your walls, in, in construction, etc. Because they're, they're readily available, they're relatively cheap, and they are able to provide some basic flame resistance to these otherwise uh, elements that would be fuel. But when it comes to clothing, what's going on your back, first and foremost, people always focus on what the term treated versus inherent. Let's address, let's address that just for a second. Mm-hmm. Those terms in the 70s were very relevant. Why? Because you had cotton fiber, aka fuel, that had a fire retardant treatment put on it so that it would not burn. Where did we see those garments used? typically in the steel industry. Mm. You had what was called Inherent, which was your easily recognizable DuPont's Nomex, which dominated the refining environment. And that was a molecular change of nylon into Nomex where it won't support combustion in the fiber itself. You actually changed the molecular makeup of a known product. And by changing that, it will not be consumed uh, then you will not have fire. Where cotton is fuel and you are treating it, hence the term, to impart flame resistant properties, so it will not be consumed and cause injury. Mm. The, pro- the problem is today, those terms are obsolete. Why? We have something called, for example, FR-mode acrylics. Well, FR-mode acrylics and non-FR-mode acrylics, if both exist, how can it be inherent? Mm. Because what happens is when that acrylic is a soup, before we extrude it into being a fiber, we add a ton of fire retardant chemistry, then we extrude it, so now the fiber has flame resistant properties in it. Mm. Well, is it inherent? Well, no, man had to make it. Well... Was that Nomex fiber inherent? Well, technically, no. Man had to, humans had to intervene and change their molecular formula. Well, what about that organic or that cellulosic, a.k.a. cotton, which we know is a fuel? Well, humans intervened and imparted fire-retardant chemistry into the fiber, so it now has flame-resistant properties. At the end of the day, we engineer either at the fabric level, which is your cellulosics or what we call cotton-rich for the most part, mm-hmm. at the molecular level, like we talked about our Nomexes, our Kermels, our Twarons, and then the FR engineering occurs. It's permanent. It does not carry with it any of these PBDs. It's never had the PBDs mm-hmm. as part of that fire retardant uh, chemistry. So when you talk about things to leak into skin, it's a surface uh, application. We can interact with the treatment itself. That is a misnomer when it comes to everything from quality manufacturers and quality sources here in North America. It does not occur. Uh, mm-hmm. Both the CDC and NIOSH have recognized uh, this. Uh, we did have a big study years ago on the antimony side in our firefighting community, for example. Antimony is a known cancer causing agent. It mm-hmm. is a byproduct of of uh, FR motor acrylics, but what they were finding out is the exposure was not from their station wear, was not from their turnout gear, it was from them walking on the fire grounds post event Mm. and inhale all the off gassing from all these modern materials that are now in households think about how much antimony from the motor acrylic fibers in your carpets how much other agents are in the new uh building supplies that go into making a modern household they've known that based on how uh quickly new homes are consumed versus the older building agents like we had uh, in the 60s and 70s versus how we're building today in the 2000s. So that's a long-winded answer to say that those discussions come up periodically when they're in the construction industry, when you're talking about Mm -hmm. consumer products like electronics, when you're talking about new building materials, they are not in your flame-resistant arc rating clothing fabrics here in North America from Quality Supply Chain Partners.
0: Okay. Well, that's definitely good to know. Um, So how are these garments uh, tested to verify their protective capabilities? Good
1: question. Because again, at the end of the day, we have to have a bar, a barometer, a measuring tool. Because when we say flame resistant, arc rated, flame resistant and arc rated to what? Right. And then we look at our standards, our people, our committees of like-minded folks who are experts in the industry. They come from manufacturing side, the retail side, the uh, fiber fabric side. There are good, solid cross-section of people who get together and say, we have to have a bare minimum requirement of what we mean when we say flame-resistant arc-rated properties. So for our arc flash hazard, we basically look at two primary ones. That's ASTM 1506, and within ASTM 1506, there's ASTM 1959. That's the actual test protocol to receive an arc rating. We actually take uh, the panels. There's three panels on in the Faraday cage where we actually set off a controlled arc flash in the Faraday cage. We expose it 21 different times to a certain fabric, weight, composition, design, all that. And it ends up coming out with a arc rating that's either gonna be an ATPV, an arc thermal performance value, or an E sub BT, energy break open threshold. They're both the same, and whatever that occurs at, we run some really cool math, and we come up with a 50% probability of a second-degree burn. That's a blister underneath or at that fabric if it's broken open. Mm. So there we know when we say that's 8.6 calories of protection or 9.6 or 5.6, I now know how insulated and protective my garment is. Mm. I can then take that information, compare it to my arc flash hazard, uh, assessment. And I know that that gray box on the wall, according to my engineers, if that faults, it'll produce four calories of energy. So if I know I have four calories of energy coming out, what do you think my response is in my PPE? I want to have more. Mm. So if I have a four calorie box and five calories of protection, I'm going in the right per, right area. I don't want to be in front of an 8-calorie box, though, with 6 calories of protection. So mm-hmm. we always want to have more arc rating versus incident energy. Then on our flash fire side, it's different hazard, both thermal. But this, we're talking about a short-duration thermal exposure, typically 3 seconds or less. And we want to design garments out of fabrics that have been exposed to this environment. So NFPA 2112 is your standard there. That's the standard that tells us as manufacturers how to build garments. There's a number of tests in there, which fabrics have to pass. The big one everybody thinks about is ASTM 1930. That's your mannequin test. That's the full mannequin dressed in a coverall. We set off eight burners on four torches, two burners per torch for two calories per centimeter squared for a total of three seconds. So a six calorie exposure and we have to have less than 50% body burn so that we can now start building garments out of that fabric. Mm. So within that range, you'll have different fabrics, different weights that have uh, different body burn compositions so that you can start building garments. Now, the caveat there is you don't take the body burn graph as the sole predictor of your specification because it's single layer. There's no pockets. There's no attribute. It's not a commercially viable uh, product. So, But that is a starting point for manufacturers. Once it passes that test, we can go through a number of other tests, then start building garments. But what you know at the end of the day, whether it's an arc flash or a flash fire, if you have an arc rating in the garment, it's been tested to your hazard and you know what it will insulate you to. In 2112, you know it's a minimum of less than 50% body burn and then they start building garments towards them. So bottom line is they've been tested in the hazard that they're supposed to be exposed to. Most of the... uh, Garments are made out of fabrics today that are dual hazard. You'll see both an arc rating and a uh, independently certified. Typically, UL has certified that it meets the requirements of NFPA 2112. So technically, I can be on a refinery with a flash fire hazard as an electrician with an arc flash hazard, and I could be wearing the exact same
0: garments and be protecting to both hazards. Oh, very cool. So... So what's the usual shelf life for these, these FR garments? Are they, they sound, obviously, the testing you've described is pretty intense. So are, I would assume, are they very durable?
1: Really good question, because this is, as you're going through this evaluation process, first and foremost, it has to meet the standards. That's your bare minimum. Then you want to look at How durable is it? What are the manufacturers saying? I can expect this performance to last. Mm -hmm. What you want to look for is guaranteed for the life of the garment. Now, two things when you say that. One, that sounds pretty salesy because it sounds somewhat ambiguous. What do you mean by that? I'll tell you that shortly. And then secondly, it does not correlate or have anything to do with the FR properties, assuming that it's coming from a a good quality manufacturer. However, you rate that and you can think of all the manufacturers in the United States and North America here, and you're probably going to be pretty good picking one of them. So I'm not trying to be biased and, and point you to one. I'm saying there's a number there. But You want to make sure it comes from quality uh, manufacturers because life of the garment is what that real life is. Meaning, if I'm on a refinery, if I'm working as a heavy-duty hydraulic mechanic, that garment may only last me eight months. Why? I just burn through clothes. The job that I do, the environment that I'm in, how I'm abrading that garment, what I'm rubbing up against on a daily basis, and I can just be hard on clothes. I could Mm -hmm. be in the same refinery and I can be in operation sitting in a controlled environment, air conditioned behind glass, and all I do is push a green button and a red button alternating Mm -hmm. throughout the day. That coverall could last me seven years. If it's in good, wearable, usable condition, the FR properties are guaranteed for life, and that's regardless of how that FR engineering was achieved. Was it, a, was it inherent where we changed the molecular structure? Was it treated where we imparted FR chemistry into the fiber matrix? Or was it a hybrid where it's an FR mode acrylic with some aramid, with some para-aramid, with some Kevlar, with some lyosil, with some non-FR cotton for, for comfort? However we achieve that FR engineering is irrelevant if it's going to last for the life of the garment. And that's the guarantee that you want to see. Because then it's durable, then you know that it's going to perform day one, day 1001, and more importantly, the day that you need it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, some, some jobs, you know, they're, they're harder on these clothes than others. So, like, what if you're wearing this clothing while you're working with hazardous material? Like, let's say you're removing asbestos or something like that. Are, are these garments washable or are they disposable? Like, what's the deal with that?
1: Well, let's. I'm going to go answer that question backwards. First and foremost, are, are there are disposable cover-ups that you can get to protect that expensive flame-resistant arc-rated clothing that you got? Because on average today, you're looking at 125 to 150 dollars for a shirt and pant, and you definitely don't want to be exposing right. it to something that could permanently damage it. So there are disposable lightweight uh, tie cam type products. The key there is if you're using anything as a disposable over top of your flame resistant arc rated clothing in a thermal hazard, make sure that that disposable has thermal properties that it will protect you. It will not ignite, melt, drip, and add to the injury. Basically, you want it in an arc flash or a flash fire to be consumed rapidly so it's not there. And then what what you're wearing underneath, which is for that hazard is going to do the bulk of the protection. So you don't want that outer layer melting, dripping, or igniting. So you do want it to have some flame-resistant properties. That's number one. Mm -hmm. In the name of your question, or in the bulk of your question there, you talked about something about asbestos. Well, asbestos obviously is nasty. I don't want any of that getting on my garments. Can I be 100% sure that I'm washing it out? Probably the, the question there would be, in all honesty, If I get 99.9 percent of it out, how do I document that? How do I show? So if I was asking that specific question from an end user, I would say remove the hazard, eliminate the hazard, go through your hierarchy uh, of safety controls, and don't have to wear your expensive flame-resistant arc-rated clothing while you're removing asbestos. Right. Get it to get it to where it's de-energized or the hazard is not available. Then you can just get into Uh, the primary PPE for that hazard, you're going to get into something that in a thermal event would be meltable, but is designed for that hazard. You're going to have your breathing apparatus your hood, you're getting into a barrier that's going to, that you just then dispose of through uh, your proper safety practices, and the thermal is not a concern, so you wouldn't be wearing that expensive gear in there. You wouldn't be having to take it to that extra level of protection. So if you do have to remove asbestos in an energized electrical environment or a flash fire threat environment, remove the hazard, and then you don't have to wear your expensive uh, flame-resistant arc-rated clothing.
0: Definitely. So uh, what happens if the garment gets wet in the course of, of working? Uh, does that affect its protective qualities at all? Good question,
1: because uh, there's kind of two schools of thought
0: here, uh, in
1: the lab and in the real world. Uh, we, ha- mm-hmm. we have seen uh, in, in the lab, when we get FR clothing wet, uh, what it does is it arc flash uh, would uh, flash steam that moisture, possibly transferring and they've seen transfer into the calorimeter that's sitting behind that fabric where you're registering 1.2 calories per centimeter squared. That's the onset of a second degree burn. So where that happens typically has been lower than the advertised insulative ATPV or arc rating that we talked about. So let's say my arc rating is 8.5. I saturate that garment. I do the test again, and I'm down now at six. So I've reduced my protection because the theory is that that arc flash is so intense, it flashes the moisture to steam. The steam transfers, uh, energy to my skin, causing me to be injured. That's in the laboratory. Uh, the tough thing is, is we don't see that in in the real world. We don't have any evidence of really anybody being in an arc flash event when they're soaking wet and being more injured than they should be under their protective PPE. So it's one of those uh, tough things to really answer. Bottom line is, that we're going to have to do a lot more work on it. The other side of the equation that I always call to is, how wet is too wet? Are we talking about sweat? Then everybody mm. sweats at a different rate. How do you, how are you going to manage and communicate that? If we're in the rain, if we're in the snow, if we're in the sleet, there's additional PPE that you should be wearing. For now, your primary hazard is the environment. Don your arc-rated mm. rain gear. Don your uh, ASTM 2733 rain gear for flash fire protection. Go get your rain gear on. Go get that additional layer. Because now you're getting wet, you're getting rained on, you're gonna get you're gonna potentially get cold, you're gonna get uncomfortable, and you're gonna be at risk at causing or having an accident because you're fighting the environment. So good question. We have some lab results that we're still kicking around. We have some real-world empirical evidence that we we see and know when we have incidents. And then the other thing is is don't work wet. If you're If you're starting to get rained on or you see rain coming, get down out of the bucket, get off the yard, either get back to your tool room and check out your appropriate and approved rain gear or get down out of the bucket, go in the cab and put your rain gear on and then get back to work. So take your time and, uh, don't work wet, uh, if possible.
0: Great. So what, what about other wear and tear? Like, uh, Uh, You mentioned this a little bit before, but like if you get rips or holes in the clothing, is it okay to like patch those up yourself or do you need to get a new garment?
1: This this is one of those ones that turns into, oh, I'm going to answer what the standards say and then I'm going to tell you what Derek says. (laughs) Uh, This is your PPE. This is your last line of defense. Can you repair it? Yes. Here's the rules. Like material, so have an old shirt, old pant that you can use for patching, and use flame-resistant threads. So most people have access to the Google box. Mm. Get on Google, type in Nomex or Aramid thread. Hopefully it pops up on Amazon somewhere, which I believe it does. Mm-hmm. If you're prime, you can get it within two days, and order yourself up some uh, FR thread. And now you're going to make little patches, and you're going to sew them onto your clothing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell you how often you can do that. It doesn't tell you what size those rips and tears can be. So what's the rule of thumb coming from Bulwark's uh, technical people? If you make the Mm -hmm. okay sign with your thumb index finger, you've got three fingers standing up, that's a tear of three inches. That's our, our rule. If you, if you reduce that thumb and index to the size of a nickel, that okay sign now tells you how big a hole and how long a rip you can repair. Okay. Now, Derek's, this is your PPE. This is your last line of defense. You do not allow your safety harness, your fall harnesses to be ripped, frayed, cut, tears and you wear it properly. Take the same mentality with your flame resistant arc rated clothing. I talk to guys all the time who wear their fall harness on a regular basis and have never fallen, Mm -hmm. but they would not be allowed to climb. They would not allow to be in that working at height. If there was a cut, a fray or a tear on any of that gear, they're not allowed to do it. Why would you I've never been in a flash fire, I've never been in an arc flash, but I'm going to allow my clothing to become threadbare and torn, patched up. We just take a completely different mindset when it comes to our last line of defense in clothing, yet if you're in a thermal event, that's the only thing that you've got working in your advantage to how you're going to come out of that. But you'll jeopardize that by letting it get all torn up secondary accelerants all over it just gunked up and it's not going to work as well as when you need it take the same mindset that you would with your fall harness and it'll go a long way to where if you ever need it to work it's going to work as best as it can
0: yeah that's a really good point so uh my next question i think i got an idea of the answer because we sort of touched on it before but Can you wear other clothing on top of your FR clothing? You know, like if you have to wear a high-vis vest or other forms of PPE, and maybe some of these garments aren't flame-resistant, can you wear those or will that render the FR clothes ineffective?
1: Justin, you've went from one of my pet peeves to my biggest pet peeve. (laughs) Let let me explain what I mean by that. Sure. There is, if you are wearing arc-rated or flame-resistant clothing to the hazard, do not put anything on top of that that has not been equally tested to work and perform in your hazard. Because why? It will nullify all that investment and all the performance requirements of that flame-resistant arc-rated clothing that it's on top of. So you've invested Mm. tens of thousands of dollars on your team over the year, and you put a $25 high-vis vest that says it's FR on the packaging. And you put that on top of it, you can nullify that whole investment in literally the blink of an eye. There are are vests and rainwear out there today that have and are being marketed as flame resistant. Why? They're able to pass one test that allows them to market as FR. It is a gray area, a loophole, however you want to categorize it in what we do today now ansi because of the high vis requirements typically from vests and rain gear ansi 107 2015 drilled down and said look you can't claim to be flame resistant and ansi unless you meet one of these six standards mm. astm uh 23 uh 2302 uh, astm 2733 astm 1891 nfpa uh oh my gosh, it's slipping me now. I should have it uh, right on top of my head. But my, the bottom line is there's six categories that you can, and if you're not in those six standards, you can't claim that you're flame resistant. The one that we see the most of today is it on the label, say it's ASTM 6413, and you'll have the, the initials SE, meaning it self-extinguishes. That is meaningless mm. in what we do in Arc Flash and Flash Fire. In fact, it will... It's not a performance standard. All it said is it's passed a vertical flame test. It's demonstrated that it'll self-extinguish and it meets a certain char length. Well, think about it. If I hold plastic over flame, the plastic runs away from the flame. Hence, I don't ignite. Hence, I don't have a char length. That doesn't make you self-extinguishing by definition. It just says that you have kind of passed that test. Well, when you put that out there, people think, oh, well, it's the same as being ASTM 2733, which is for rain gear and flash fire, or it's the same as ASTM 1506, which is getting an ARC rating in in, in an ARC flash. It is not. The difference is it's about 25 bucks versus 75 bucks, which you should be paying, but you're trying to save $50. And that $50 save could jeopardize the tens of thousands of dollars that you're investing in your proper flame resistant arc rated clothing. So be very, very cautious. Be very cautious of people marketing that their vests meet NFPA 70E and are Cat 2. That's impossible. And Mm. the fact that people have it on their marketing brochures is shameful. Why? Right in NFPA 70E 130.7, it says, arc-rated shirt, pant, coverall. You must have sleeves and you must be able to button it up. Show me a vest with sleeves and show me that you can button it up. Then it's called a shirt, not a vest. Right. Right. So when you see these companies marketing and using our terminology to convince you that they've done the appropriate work, be very, very cautious. The easiest thing that I tell people: if your rain gear cost you a hundred bucks, you got the wrong rain gear. If your vest cost you twenty-five bucks, you got the wrong vests. It should be more like four hundred to five hundred dollars for the proper rain gear that's going to protect your people in the hazard, and closer to seventy-five to a hundred bucks for the vests that are going to protect your people if there's a hazard.
0: Wow! Yeah, that's very important for our audience to know. Yeah, th- thank you for that advice. Now, I'm going to shift gears here a little, and I'm going to talk a little, uh, we could talk a little bit about, you know, PPE compliance, you know, that's always a big deal. So, I I imagine that a common complaint that workers may have when they're wearing their FR garments that, you know, sleeves rolled down, tucked in, is that they're too hot. So, what are the, are there any heat stress risks with this type of PPE, and uh, how can they be managed?
1: Awesome. Because if there is one thing categorically, if you say flame-resistant clothing, you may as well say too hot at the same time. If I, you know, at that old psychology test, you know, uh, give me one word. When I say FR, you say hot. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the answer is twofold. First and foremost, when you say it's hot, are you talking about actually something that is measurable like heat stress or something that's entirely subjective like comfort. And let me address comfort first. And here's why. Next time that you have a company meeting and you're sitting getting ready to address your team, take a look at your team. Your team is sitting in a controlled environment, typically about you know, 68 to 72 degrees. And as you look over your team of 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever the environment is, they'll be wearing t shirts, short sleeve polos, long sleeve polos, long sleeve t shirts, a t shirt and a hoodie, a hoodie, sweatshirt, sweatshirt and a t shirt, long sleeve button down, short sleeve button down. And they're all going to be comfortable in that environment or they would dress differently. Mm-hmm. That being said, comfort is subjective. It's nothing to do with a measurable disease such as heat stress. So how does flame-resistant arc-rated clothing fit into uh, heat stress? The short answer is both OSHA and NIOSH have stated single layer, and this is important, flame-resistant arc-rated clothing does not trap heat or restrict heat removal any more than regular non-FR clothing.
0: Mm.
1: Why is that? Because heat is shed primarily by evaporation of sweat, and what causes heat stress is the restriction of evaporation. Because once you get into ambient air temperatures greater than 98.6 degrees, the three cooling methods that you have, excuse me, the four cooling methods that you have, you're only down to one, and that is evaporation, that is sweat. Mm -hmm. What restricts sweat is either physiological conditions like I'm dehydrated or my medication or my physical fitness level. And then the other thing is if I put a barrier on there, yes, when we put a barrier like we talked about TICAM, we talked about rain gear. Uh, we've, we haven't talked about arc flash suits, but donning an arc flash suits has to be monitored. That can't be an all-day environment. That is going to elevate our body temperature and we won't be able to cool off. And that's going to take us into heat stress conditions and we'll march through rash and we'll muck all the way through down to uh, exhaustion where we're calling 911. But the bottom line is that when it comes to my body, Basic all day, every day, single layer, whether that's a shirt pant or coverall, there is no correlation between the FR properties that are there versus if you had non-FR properties. More than likely, any mm. heat stress is going to be caused by something that is uh, physiological or to where we've introduced a barrier or multiple layers, uh, heavy layers to where we are impeding that ability to evaporate.
0: Mm. Okay. So with, with any form of PPE and, you know, ensuring that, you know, your workers are being compliant, uh, training is vastly important. So how can employers frame and present their training, uh, on this topic to ensure FR garment compliance and proper usage among their workers?
1: Well, so first, uh, Shameless uh, promotion here. (laughs) Bulwark, my team of Bulwark certified trainers, will come out and we'll take care of that OSHA 1910-132 component to where you have to uh, record and demonstrate and do all those things as far as donning and doffing your PPE and understanding what it can't do. And most important thing that we have to train our end users on is what it can't do. Mm. That all being said... Having selected the proper flame resistant arc rated garments uh, for your hazard, that's the first step. All your standards and all your, and importantly, your regulations say that you have to train people on how to correctly wear uh, and how directly that impacts what they're going to do on a day to day basis. They have to know to tuck them in, roll them down, Mm -hmm. button them up, and that's how you implement your PPE on a daily basis. They have to be taught on what they can and cannot wear uh, underneath their PPE. Then as the employer, they get to document, hey, that training was done. That training was 45 minutes. Everybody that attended, boom, boom, boom. Now it's documented. We can record that for prosperity so you can reuse it however you want to do it. But get get with good subject matter experts. It should be a no-cost part of anybody's program, and it, it should be it relatively easy to get that regulatory requirement met.
0: Great. So I'm sure that real world stories, you know, help, help drive home the importance of properly wearing FR clothing, whether you tell them during training or maybe, you know, while on the job, you know, during a toolbox talk or something like that. Now, do you have any stories from the field about how FR garments have saved lives?
1: It's probably the single most uh, rewarding part of of what we do, Justin. Uh, Mm -hmm. On a regular basis, uh, we typically have either the end users themselves, their safety manager uh, sending us pictures via email. We've got some of them up in uh, those, those, uh, what do you call those boxes, those little boxes, that uh, view boxes. I forget the correct name for those. Uh, but we have those in, on display on our uh, the third floor of our facility. We see those on a timely manner. Uh, obviously the garments have suffered the results of a violent short duration thermal event whether that's an arc flash or a flash fire. They're damaged severely uh, but the last line of that email or the last line of that phone call always concludes with and they were okay. Well, that's great. or. They weren't hurt as bad as they could have been. He's got some slight burns, but nowhere near uh, what could have happened. And and those are always great to share with our folks, especially when sometimes if you're on the front lines, if you're in customer service, if you're down on inside sales, if you're supporting this vast network, sometimes you forget that... uh, And I tell my team all the the time, remember, we do not make shirts, pants, and coveralls. And that sounds humorous when you're talking about the largest flame-resistant clothing manufacturer in the world. Mm -hmm. That's not what we make. We make life-saving pieces of equipment. And... We want people to understand that I hope you never have to use my shirt, pan or cover for what we are building it for. We're building it to ultimately save your life. And I want you to go through your whole career saying, I never had to use your stuff for what you built it for. That being said, though, it's so important that all those bells and whistles are built into that garment. And are there, what, when you need it. Because when you find out if you're going to cut some corners, if you're looking to buy or invest in inexpensive garments, there has to be some things cut out. Unfortunately, you don't know that until you need it. And that's the downside. You're basically investing in the hope that you never have to use it for what it's built for in the first place.
0: Absolutely. So what does the future look like for FR Garments? Are we looking at any new developments on the horizon?
1: Aren't we always. Aren't (laughs) we always. Our Our goal right now and where the market is trending is we're looking to create true performance workwear for that occupational athlete. We're looking to take all that technology, all that kinesiology, all that science of movement that we're seeing in our performance world, in our performance fabrics, and we're looking to get that into the flame-resistant arc-rated market and ultimately defeat the comfort equation or the comfort objection, back to Mm -hmm. your it's too hot objection. We want Mm -hmm. PPE that's going to aid our professionals and aid our safety people by driving compliance through comfort. Uh, How's that going to look? Can we open up the weave? Think about it. There's a Garments are built to protect you against thermal energy. Thermal energy is going to find any window that it can get through. But what if I had a fabric that stayed open and wide and allowed a lot of air permeability, but instantaneously fused shut as a barrier between you and that thermal event during when it happened? Uh, mm. Moisture wicking technology, that's not a finish. That's actually built into and is a core characteristic of that fiber, so it lifts moisture moisture from your body, rapidly moving it to the outside where it can evaporate. If you're dry, you're comfortable. But there's also other byproducts when I start looking at thermal regulation. If I have big open spaces, those garments are easier to clean. If I move moisture rapidly, they're easier to dry. And so they become kind of more economical to actually use. Uh, Mm. you look at durability, utilizing fibers, because why, like I said earlier, a set is between 125 and $150. I don't want it lasting six months. I would like it to last about three years. Mm. So increasing superior resistance to abrasion improve your ROI. But at the end of the day, we say all those things and they, none of them matter if first and foremost, I can't protect you. Mm. Protection comes first in what we do. Then, if I can be comfortable, great. If I can give you a great re- uh, return on your investment, outstanding. But first and foremost, I have to protect. So we're looking at advancements in that FR engineering, looking at advancements in uh, molecular fiber and fabric content that's going to give you something that is supremely protective, ultimately very, very comfortable wear. So I increase compliance through comfort. And at the end of the day, you are comfortable making that payment on that life-saving piece of equipment.
0: Absolutely. That's great. A lot of interesting stuff going on in this area of protective equipment. Uh, so thanks so much, Derek, for uh, sitting down to chat with us today on EHS On Tap.
1: Loved it, Justin.
0: Appreciate it. And thank you for the time and greatly thank you for the platform. Absolutely. You're very welcome. Now, thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Now, be sure to keep an eye out for new episodes of our podcast and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest in best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Skase for EHS on Tap.